Hey everybody, welcome to Subtitles on the only podcast about movies. Uh, we are so excited today. Our long local nightmare is over. Uh, the WGA strike has been resolved, ratification pending, uh, but I have very uh, positive expectations that this will get voted through. We got a good deal. And what remains, of course, is the SAG after strike. Uh, and whether you side with SAG or AFTRA, you have to agree that what we're fighting for is important. Um, and so this show, obviously, it's called Subtitles On. We watch a movie with the subtitles on. We <laughs> um, read the subtitles. Subtitles? Subtitles. It's called Subtitles On. And, uh, <laughs> what? You need to change this. It says subtitles. Ex excuse on me. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Your art guy fucked up, Sean. Excuse me. Neither of you have been introduced. <laughs> this show is called Subtitles On. <laughs> the subtitles are on the screen. <laughs> we we read it's they're typed, so they're subtitles. Typles or tibles? What are you saying? <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying. Okay, what are you reading? Feel, it's the <laughs> what feel of it that has to okay. come through. I read the, the emotional truth. It's the yeah. emotional truth of the subtitles. <laughs> the, <laughs> I tell emotional truths on, <laughs> on podcasts. I've always said that about you. I've said everything Sean has ever said on mic is honest emotionally. There's a kernel of truth <laughs> in yes. the name subtitles on. That's your Arnold Palmer for podcasting is 10% mm -hmm. real stuff, 90% emotional truth. Well, and, and yes, and it's to transport the audience to the place where they imagine me reading subtitles <laughs> and, and feel what that feeling is. Um, but in general, the whole idea of starting the podcast was I'm sitting with writers. We're talking about writing. A writer wrote the movie. Therefore, the movie is meant to be read. But someone else read the movie. And it's the damn actors who made the movie acting in it. And that today is going to be the focus. I'm here with two actors. The movie's about an actor. It's still written. I still read it. It still needs to be discussed that there was a script involved. Although this guy who made it is some kind of loosey-goosey with the script sometimes, I believe. Because he's coming from a place that services the actors primarily. And that's what I'd like to do today on the show, too. So let me service two actors right now from the incredible <laughs> podcast, Blank Check. I have Griffin. Oh, hello. I did, we're doing no last names, just first names. Hi, I'm Griffin. You think yes. you need a last name? Good point. Good point. Griffin, the new man. <sighs> uh, and, of course, we have... Gil Gilead Jacobs. <laughs> uh, Abbreviations first, please. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> she's here. And so I had scheduled this with Griffin. First of all, I tried to get both blank check guys. David told me to fuck off. Yeah, I told words. you to go pack sand. Oh, yeah. I've never heard that one. Yeah, he said pack sand. Pack sand. <laughs> yeah. And then I was like, okay. And then he said, into your ass. Yeah, he said, pack it in tight. <laughs> I was like, what? I had no, but anyway, so David yeah. is. And you podcast with this person? I try. 
I okay. do try. You yeah. end up in these financial tangles yes. with these yes. people. Mm -hmm. They reveal who they are after you're already kind of pot committed. <sighs> um, but uh, which I'm trying to separate from Hayes, obviously. Right. Um, but we <laughs> <New> also Hayes. <laughs> no Hayes today. <laughs> New Hayes. Oh, Gil. Gillian Jacobs. Oh, hat pack. <laughs> So um, we also have, uh, and you know, these people, Griffin, he's mm. in, he's not got blank check, but he's also acting. He's on the tick. He's in draft day. <laughs> My favorite movie. We have the great know, American she's, film. Well, she's on, she was on community. She's in Ibiza. She's doing all the different movies and TV shows. Love where we acted together. Correct. How to shared mm. the screen. Um, so uh, these people have unique experience, and the movie that we watch was opening night. So let's talk first about John Cassavetes, Nick's dad. <laughs> let's discuss Nick's dad for a minute. The ultimate What's nepo your daddy. Take? Yeah. Griffin, you said to me, and I don't know if I'm telling tales out of school, that you don't think David would ever let you do a John Cassavetes series on blank check. Is he not into it? He's not. I would say he's not particularly uh, into it. I, Does it I, not a fan? I don't think a, a big fan. I feel like Cassavetes tends to be someone. And uh, Jolene, I get I get the vibe that you're in the same camp as me, that people are either kind of like fanatical about. And it felt like this eye opening experience when you discover his movies and it sort of becomes a whole worldview and a perspective that you apply then to the way you think about all like performing arts and, and narrative storytelling. Uh, okay, I love sorry. being spoken I think for. You, I, think, <laughs> I think you said Jillian. I'm sorry, Gil. <laughs> oh, I thought you were correcting the point. She doesn't feel that way at all. <laughs> Let me speak for you. Yeah. I was wrong in, in both points. No, go ahead. No, yeah. it's, it's, it's a cursed name I have, so it doesn't even register. It's that it feels like the opportunity for alliteration is there. That's the issue, right? The opportunity is there. Did my mother seize it? No. Yeah. She never occurred to her that people would call me Jillian Jacobs. Because you plant the seed of the sure. J sound. You, you do. You do. Yeah. It's you a backwards. Do. With, with yeah. the whole history of the name, probably. You know, there are a few Gillians, but yeah, you're. I'm mm -hmm. fighting the tide with my pronunciation. I, I've sort of given no, it. No, I, I get a Griffith a lot, mm -hmm. uh, a tremendous yeah. amount, which is the opposite thing. People fucking up the, the end of my name. We and could Griffin just make Dunn. this. People call you Griffin Dunn, right? Ooh. Well, they call me Griffin over more often. <laughs> <laughs> Griffin, Griffin finished. finished. Yeah. In this town, at least. Um, we could just, we could collectively for this episode uh, refer to ourselves as a unit, as like a two-headed guest, as G&G &G Podcast yes. Factory. That could be sort of our thing. And that clears he's up all loving the confusion. It. He the likes G &G it so much. He's Podcast Factory. G&G &G Podcast Factory. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen him love anything this Everybody before. talk now. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, think, I think David Sims, uh, the Sandpacker himself, uh, is is one of these people which I, a lot of people uh, have this response to Cassavetes of just kind of like, I get it. Mm. Yeah, I understand the importance of this. This is not my taste. This is cilantro or whatever, you know. It's dill uh, for me. I hate dill. Sure. Just had to announce that on the pod. Dillian Jacobs. Yeah. That's um, how you really hurt my feelings. <laughs> Dillian Jacobs. <laughs> 
I've, I've proposed We've it before that we cover him on the podcast and we do a thing every March where we do a March Madness bracket where people vote for who we're going to cover. Uh-huh. And, and that's the one place I've submitted him maybe twice to see if I can get our audience to support it enough to get David to retreat. And it doesn't feel and like the, the yeah. groundswell is there. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I don't have a ton of experience with his films. Um, but I know, like you said, I said, let's do a movie about an actor. Um, once we you got suggest cut Garden the David State. Deadweight. I said, yeah. I said, I said, I know you want to do Garden State. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you called my shot. Yeah. Um, it's the best movie about acting and about being an actor. It's definitely Garden State. Well, it's just they're acting in it and the guy's playing an actor and he yes. was an actor at the time. So it's got it's three like, levels. There's all these layers to it. Um, but you said opening night and holy, holy motors. motors are your two favorite movies about I've never seen holy acting motors. well maybe you would like this because i then immediately thought of gillian who texted me anyway because like i'm famous i'm in the Larchmont chronicle mm, this week course. saying that yeah. I, what my halloween plans with my family might be um <laughs> but she, she had emailed me and i was like oh i was just thinking about you because i'm watching this movie that you had told me to watch i think only like a couple weeks ago when we ran into each other and I know that you're a Jenna Rollins super like, fan, psychopath. Sure, I'll take that mantle <laughs> for this woman. So I was like, "Oh well, do you want to swing through?" Um, because obviously you have very strong opinions. Is this your favorite performance of hers? I don't know that I do favorites with her. Sure, I but I I yeah I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. No, but I <laughs> is this one of her performances. I, I, this is a performance that she gave. <laughs> yeah. I really admire her so much. And maybe this is also one of those things where people always say that actors love performing Chekhov more than audiences like watching Chekhov, where uh-huh. I find her to be like the goal as an actress. Yeah. Um, and I, I think a lot of other actors feel how I do about her. But maybe if I was not, I would be less drawn to this movie or some of their other films. But I think that she has that um, feels like total freedom, um, but you also know that there's a lot of technique and intelligence behind it, but it just feels like she's sort of like a raw nerve uh, moving through the world and that I just find her mesmerizing. I don't know how you guys feel, but. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I feel the same way. I, I think she's like on the Mount Rushmore of, acting and is not sort of often included in that conversation other than by Cassavetti's superfans because, I mean, she did a lot of great work outside of uh, her, her partnership with her husband, but I these are the canonical performances. This is my favorite Cassavetti's movie and my favorite performance of hers, even if I don't necessarily think it's like objectively the best. Yeah. Because I feel like Woman Under the Influence is the one that feels like the distillation of their whole thing together. Um, but I, but I do think you look at what she was doing in the seventies and it's as impactful as the way that like Pacino and De Niro and Hackman were kind of rewriting the whole idea of screen acting, them sort Mm -hmm. of taking this mantle from Brando and she's not often put in that conversation, but I think it's as essential. As she plays this truly unhinged person and, but as you pointed out Gillian with like some clear like technique and control but also the freedom to like just do weird stuff yeah 
it almost feels like possibly like a proto like Nick Cage at his uh-huh. peak where uh-huh. you're just like this is a person who is doing like almost like abstract art yeah. in their acting but you know that underpinning that is the ability to like completely direct and control like every you know whatever little facial twitch or anything like but they're going like but what if I didn't yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and it it was cool to me. I had not seen um, their collaborations. I hadn't seen Woman Under the Influence. The only Cassavetes movie I had ever watched was Killing of a Chinese Bookie. That's the only one I had seen, period. Ben Gazar is great in it. Yeah, I thought it was Sean great. movie. <laughs> I, I, yes, it's the kind of movie I would like. Um, yeah. But I had the same feeling with that and with this, uh, which is the pacing of his films requires patience. Yes. And I, I just, I watch movies like this, especially classic movies by like impactful directors. And I, and it's the same when I read like whatever, any like great literature I missed on it. I go, I wish I had done this earlier Earlier. when I was younger, before I had a phone I could look at. Before I had a family that wanted me to like stop watching the movie. Um, So like I do appreciate it and I got really into it and I think it's very impressive and very great. But I also have this thing of like I can't get as deep into it. There's a time in my life where I would watch this have been like or or um, Killing of a Chinese Boogie have been like I'm going to watch everything these people ever made because I think it's great. But I don't totally have the like patience to commit to it the way that I would like to. Did did either of you ever live in New York? Yeah. I, well, I he in lives New in New York now. So That's do. why he's okay. not, yeah. not so here. Yeah. I really, when you're saying that, I thought about this time in my life when I was going to film forum all the time yes. yeah. and watching new prints of old movies. And I felt like that was a perfect context and setting to fall in love with films like this yeah. because it's like you're amongst people who revere it and respect it. And uh, you're in a theater you can't look at your phone like all yeah. of that is removed and you're just sitting there. And I have missed that since I've moved to L.A. And I feel like my it's so strange that you moved to L.A. And I feel like I've seen fewer movies since I lived here. Yeah. It's, I look at the new Beverly Slate now or whatever. Yeah. And I go like, oh, there's a bunch of stuff I'd like to go to. But I just feel like that this current period of my life is not conducive to yes. me doing that. But I wish I had done it more when I first moved, which I did do some where I would go, you know, see some of their like double bills of things I had never seen before. And, and some of my best movie going experiences were that. And when I lived in New York, I walked dogs in the West Village mm. and I would go down there at like whatever, 7.30 a.m. and walk dogs. And then there was like a break before I had to again at like one o'clock pick up the dog and I would... um go to the Angelica. Oh yeah. All the time. And they would have like old movies or indie movies. And I saw so many movies and it was just a nice place. Sometimes I would sleep there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I would only see half of the whackness, but <laughs> a movie when, I auditioned for. Oh boy. I had the, well, I, I can tell you if you regret, um, not getting it, um, you shouldn't because an air conditioner dripped on me the whole time. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not, not a good. great movie. <laughs> no, not a great film. 
I saw uh, and Angelica is this place that's like culturally very important in New York City and is kind of one of like the oldest still standing independent movie theaters yeah. and was kind of a kingmaker for a very long time of like if you got booked into the Angelica, it's a stamp of quality. Your movie is immediately taken seriously. It was the screens that were most competitive for indie films to get on. But it is objectively a terrible theater in terms of actually being a place that displays movies in a form that is watchable and enjoyable. Uh, it's well, a you thing can hear the train underneath, about. and it then is, if yes. it's like a late screening, don't the rats like get scared out of Correct. the train it's, tunnel? What? <laughs> yes. The, whole the movie rats theater, will like run into the theater like under your seat. Yes. The whole movie theater is in a basement, and, I, and yes. the space between the basement and the top of the train is maybe two inches. Yeah. Like, it's like, it's basically right on there. The theater shakes, like, depending on how long your movie is, basically every four minutes. Your, like, entire theater is rumbling with, like, all-consuming sound, like, 20, upwards of 20 times, 40 times per movie. Um, but I saw, um, I, I speak of your whackness experience, I saw The Fountain there, the Darren Aronofsky movie. Okay. Which is, like, a, a real wackadoo you know, kind of like uh, uh, experimental narrative, multiple timeline, what is real, what isn't. And twice during the movie, the projector caught on fire and uh. burned through the film the way that happens in movies about mo- bad movie yeah. theaters yes. where it like stops and then shakes and then there's like a ball of light and then suddenly it goes like this and then the lights would come up and the music would come on and we just sat there for 15 minutes while they like respooled the film and it started and we were like, I don't know if we just lost 20 minutes of the movie or not. And then it played for another half hour and then it happened again. Wow. That's and funny would, that it's a movie that you don't, you would never know. Never know. Or you might think you the first time it. it was part of it. I did. Yes, the first course. time I did. The yeah. first time I did. And even the second time I was like, Aronofsky's <laughs> yeah. a little out there. Oh, wow. <laughs> Crazy that this really happened in a movie where this is part of it. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. The first time was art. The second time's a very bizarre coincidence. Um, but yes, no, I, I, uh, I'm I, like film forms, like one of my favorite places in the world. To, I mean, to your point, shot not to be like unbearably pretentious, which is often the trap if you're trying to like uh, extol the virtues of Cassavetes and his movies. Mm-hmm. And but um, he is one of those guys. The way that annoying people talk about bands or dense novelists or whatever, yeah. where it's like the more of it you watch, the more you get all of it. It, it's hard to kind of just watch one of his movies or two of his movies over right. a number of years. It's like the more you've absorbed the entire body of work, the more it kind of makes sense as like a holistic things. Because you you do kind of need to be taught how to watch his movies as mm-hmm. like annoying as that sounds. And <laughs> sure. it's not just the pacing, but it's like he he works at such a different rhythm than anyone ever has. Well, at this movie, like I, I'm watching it and going like, wow, he's so comfortable with me being unclear on people's relationships mm-hmm. and stuff. Like, yes, in a way that movies are not. And I have. I have a lot of respect for that. Yeah, um, it's not going into it without uh, a lot of experience with it, it's not as enjoyable a viewing experience Mm -hmm. the first time through as like, I'm sure on a rewatch, I would appreciate the movie even more. And I'm sure, as you said, if I had watched a lot of them, I would just know this is the vibe. Like he drops you into the middle of it. I mean, quite literally, like the movie starts in the middle of a scene and I rewound. Like I was like, wait, what? Because it just like there's like a credit screen and then it's just like their mid sentence like doing something where you're like, wait, hang on. 
Um, so She's like I think setting props backstage, you feel like there's something fucked up with the DVD or the stream or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, wait, is this, this is, this can't be like the very first moment, but it is. Well, it was funny you were saying, because I was watching this interview with Ben Gazzara and, uh, Jenna Rollins from the seventies before I came over here this morning. And they were talking about Joan Blondell, who plays the playwright. Yes. She yeah. equally was like, what is going on? What is this? And really, I, they said after she sort of, it was explained to her, his methodology, the type of performance, the type of movie that she relaxed into it, but at first had no idea what was going on. Because I'm sure if you're a product of the Hollywood studio system, you're a veteran actress, and then you're plopped in the middle of one of his movies, I'm sure it was so confusing to her as to what to do. And they said... Once we explained to her that she didn't have to do anything, all she had to do was react, then she had a great time. But that's cool. It is it is cool to see someone like her, though, in this wearing that feathered hat. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she has. Yeah, she has a great look. And I'm. it's you wouldn't know that she was uncomfortable with it. Yeah, she plays. No, it's, it, she actually yeah, play, it, weirdly plays the role of a steady hand mm -hmm. who's going like all these people are acting insane. I'm going to try to calm them down. But um, not only that, there's this meta casting element of her being like, I don't know if I get this. I yes. don't know if yeah. I get what's going on here and if I'm being rigid and I should just accept it or if this is a moment I need to put my foot down and maintain some sense of tradition. And she's the voice to like the producers and money people of going like, look, we just have to trust it. It might be a complete fucking disaster, but we've yeah. made things before this. We'll make things after. Yeah. Uh, like it's yeah, that is an interesting meta piece, not knowing like what her actual history was with it. Have either of you ever acted in a scene with somebody who's never done improv before and yes. then is being asked to do it? That's what I kept thinking of. Like and I've seen actors totally. Pay I mean, I, I don't have any training in improv, but I for whatever reason was always fine with it when asked in an audition or in a scene. But I've seen people just become so upset by it just being asked to do it and so i thought that was sort of the equivalent i was trying to think of like comparative experiences to my own acting career yeah i mean and and like sean you know you made the comment at the beginning of like how much this movie is written versus improvised and it, it is it is a misconception in that his films are far more written than people assume they are uh-huh he's one of those guys who i think would would write a lot of stuff off of rehearsals and workshops and things like that. Right. But these movies had fairly rigid scripts going into them, not just structurally, but in terms of dialogue. But he was very obsessed with trying to pursue the way that people talk that is never depicted in, sure. in, in, in sort of um, narrative storytelling. You know, this kind of weird, repetitive, recursive, unclear, obtuse kind of dialogue. And at the end of this movie, not to get ahead of it, but when there's sort of the final yeah. performance of the show, that's one of like the only real sections of any of his movies that is truly improvised. Yeah. Um, and so Blondell is working off a solid script here, but I think the whole process of what they're doing is so bizarre. The style of acting is so bizarre. I mean, like two big stories about Cassavetes in terms of, uh, you know, the difficulty of actors working with him who come from outside of his clique because he had mm -hmm. his troop of people he worked with over and over again who were mostly longtime friends and or wives of him. And, and then the difficulty of like getting into his movies. Uh, Husbands, which is 
uh, a movie he made that's him, Ben Gazzara, and Peter, Fogg, um, Peter yeah. Falk, which is like his Murderers Row Three Stooges. I just love Peter Falk. And it just the best. So faster. good. Well, my other Cassavetes <laughs> experience is I did watch the Columbo episode. That, oh, that, yes. That Cassavetes, oh, yeah. is, yes. which is so good. It's all at the Hollywood Bowl. He's like a um, conductor. conductor. And it's like, it's great. Yeah. There's um, Cassavetes. I think it was maybe right before he started his movie career or he was using it to fund the first movie or two. But he did his own procedural show on NBC, I want to say, in the 60s called Johnny Staccato, where he was a jazz detective. And it's so fucking good. It's the coolest shit wow. you've ever seen. At a time where they're like, just do a show where you solve mysteries. And he's like, I think my guy feels more comfortable behind a piano. And a lot of okay. the episodes don't really have to do with the mysteries at all. I have a, I have a story for this. Great. I was in Jeff Goldblum's first episode of Law and Order Criminal Intent. I am a guest star in that episode. And he also loves jazz. And so they had written a scene in, that took place in a jazz club in which uh, he just suddenly starts playing the piano in the middle of like trying to be a detective and figure out a crime. And I've never seen someone happier than <laughs> Jeff Goldblum playing the piano in the scene of Law and Order Criminal Intent. <laughs> He and just wanted to I've be ne- Johnny Staccato. Yeah, and I've never seen yeah. anyone more dedicated to their off-camera acting for our eyeline than him pretending to play the piano uh, because he couldn't make any noise for our coverage. But I, I've also experienced a jazz-playing uh, detective. That's cool. I have a story for it, too. Okay, I want to hear it. Which Perfect. is like a little bit more removed, but I got I got pulled in to help oversee a piece of development that okay. like this sort of young writer had this animated show he had been developing for a while and the studio wanted me to help him like shape it into like a pitch and a pilot and it was an animated show and i thought it was really cool and it was basically sin city set on noah's ark so it was all animals and your hero is this detective who um uh is this like spotted rhino whose wife didn't make it onto the ark so he's like this true he's like i know i'm the last of my species i'm like and it's like this very noir feeling like cool like uh animated detective show and the title that he had for it was ark city jazz and (laughs) and i now being much less cool than cassavetes or jeff goldblum was going like I think maybe we just want to call it Ark City. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, but jazz has this feeling <laughs> of like, you know, it's like just gives you the tone of like it's jazz. Like, and I was like, no, I get it. And I want that tone. <laughs> but I just think like, I just think people are going to want us to call it Ark City. <laughs> like, what a high stakes <laughs> show, though, because yeah. I mean, any murder there is incredibly. You're eliminating the species. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly extin- yeah. consequential. Yeah. Extinction stakes. Yeah, yeah, it's a good pitch. Uh, uh, the, the two things I was going to say <laughs> before I, you went I'll tell you to, what, that yeah. uh, a lot of people, including even Quibi, disagreed. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, that's a story too big for Quibi, though. <laughs> to be fair, I couldn't take small bites of that. A quick no, bite. No, no, no. I'd need long chews on Arc City Jazz. 
Um, yeah. The the two stories I'll tell quickly are the two the two Cassavetes anecdotes. So he he makes husbands where the basic plot of the movie yeah. is there's like four neighborhood dads who are best friends who are drinking buddies who are poker buddies whatever and one of them has like an unexpected heart attack and dies suddenly and they're all middle-aged and the three guys basically have a mental breakdown of like so what this is we've fallen into this domesticated life and now it could just end at any moment we all might just drop dead and they basically just run off they get on a plane (laughs) they go to vegas i think they fly to london and they just have this sort of like lost weekend of sort of soul searching and and kind of like uh, machismo nervous breakdowns. Um, and it's like a premise that could very easily be like a, a Judd Apatow movie, right? Like there's mm-hmm. a very clean sort of mainstream comedy version of that movie that still has, you know, feeling and something to say about the human condition. But And it's these three guys who are best friends and who are all really funny in real life. And he makes the movie and he screens it and it like kills at the test screening. It's just like wall to wall laughs uh, and people are just eating it up and they walk out and his producer's like, it's a hit. And he's like, I got to recut it. They're not supposed to enjoy this. And he went back and like made the movie less enjoyable. (laughs) Now, it doesn't mean he made it worse, but he was like, if they're laughing too much, if this has the rhythms of a conventional comedy, I'm getting away from what I want them to be thinking about. I uh-huh. want this to be uncomfortable. I think it still is a funny movie, but it's like a kind of um, ca- caught in your throat kind of a funny Yeah, uh, is where he lands. And then the other big story is uh, uh, Faces, which was like his big breakthrough movie with Seymour Cassell, who was another one of his um, yeah. main stock company actors and was a guy he came up with and knew really well and whatever. He's shooting the first scene with Seymour Cassell. All his movies were basically, outside of the two or three things he did within the studio system, um, self-financed and basically financed by him taking acting jobs. Uh, He would do things like Johnny Staccato or Columbo episode or Dirty Dozen in order to get the next movie made. And by the time of opening night, he's also self-distributing the movies. And it's a reason why Mm -hmm. opening night didn't really get seen for decades. Um, but um, Faces is the one where it's like, I'm filming this all in my house. My wife is one of the four leads. I really assembled a crew for the first time. I think Spielberg was a PA on Faces. Um, he just sort of like scrapped up a bunch of young, hungry, film-adjacent kids. And we're like, we're going to figure out how to make a movie in my home. And the first day of filming with Cassell, he's just like, cut, it's bullshit. You're doing phony shit. You're acting, stop it. And he, he's like, okay. And he's just trying to bring him down to like, don't think about where the light is. Don't think about your marks. Don't think about the line readings being like, like actually just look at the person and talk to her and engage with her and all that. And he just keeps calling cut on him. And after like two hours, he's like, okay, we don't have it. Everyone go home. Let's Seymour hopefully comes back tomorrow and fucking gets it. And by Seymour Cassell's account, I don't know how much of this was like um, uh, amped up. Uh, he's like, he basically like threw away three days of filming until I finally got on the wavelength of what he was looking for. Because at that point when he's making that movie, there isn't really a proof of concept of what he's trying to do. Mm-hmm. And I think he used Simmer Cassell maybe as a little bit of a, a, a guinea pig to try to teach everyone else what he was looking for in terms of feel, even with a tightly written script trying to get to a level of performance that feels like it's improvised. Where there right. is that sort of like Nick Cage weird, like, why would you make that decision? 
Uh-huh. You would never plan that, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, like Joan Blondell, who's like a fucking, you know, was in Gold Diggers of 1933 and is like as uh-huh. old Hollywood studio filmmaking as you could possibly get coming onto the set where she's like, well, I learned my lines, but what the fuck is everyone else doing? This isn't how yeah. movies work. You know, I think it's weird for the people who worked on them and and equally weird as a viewer until you spend more time in it and, and get as, kind of acclimated. Oh, sorry, sorry. No, yeah. I was just going to say, like, as a, and as an actor who aspires to do that kind of work, I also think the draw of these movies is those opportunities feel so few and far between. Yes. You know, and that combination of uh, someone doing something new, but with talent and a vision and an eye for the talent of the other actors and collecting an ensemble like that. And maybe it's not the most easy movie you've ever watched in your life, but you really feel like you're doing something new and exciting. And so I think, and there's also so much nostalgia for the movies of the seventies, you know? Yeah. Um, So I think, you know, discovering his movies and her, her acting for me, it feels like, Oh, if only I could get myself into that kind of circumstance, like, how can I how can I be part of that company? Like, how can I be challenged in that way? You know, yeah. like that sort of note from a director like that. That's the thing, you know, that feels so rare. But the reason that I wanted to do it in the first place. Stop. You're doing the podcast all wrong. Oh my God, thank <laughs> you so much. Don't look leave. We'll come back tomorrow. Forget that the mic's there. Yeah. Just, just talk about the movie. Just reset it. <laughs> just listen. And I also just love her like. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, I it, she's so beautiful. And like she, I, I think I'm also drawn to her because it's like she's such like a, a lady in a way that I'm not like her hair is always like gorgeous and perfect. But then Incredible she's hair, totally yeah. just like. <laughs> Which I just like the combination of those two things. I just find so appealing. Where, no vanity. No vanity. Yeah. Yes. That's a big thing they talk about with those really great 70s actors. I mean, it's, yeah. you know. Where it's like not, yeah, like where's she, my light? What's my, it's just like, no, I'm fucking doing Well, and as you said, yeah. like she remains beautiful. Like I think she is stunning in this film, but it's yes. interesting when you watch her work from when she was younger and like Faces is, I'd say the only movie of Cassavetes where he kind of has her framed as a traditional young ingenue, right? Mm-hmm. But when you watch her in stuff like Lonely or the Brave or, or some of her early work where they were really trying to put her in a more conventional sort of Hollywood starlet mode, which makes sense because she had the look and she had the talent. There is something where you're like, there's something inside of her she's not giving us, right? There's like yeah. a weirder performer in here that was was freed up. And it's, it's the stuff, I mean, it's like, it's what I love about Nicolas Cage and what I think so many people get wrong about Nicolas Cage. And I think the lesson is in watching any, not any other, but most other actors who try to do a quote unquote Nicolas Cage style performance is like, there is an internal logic, even in the weirdest movies of every single decision that Nicolas Cage is making. It is rooted Mm -hmm. in some interpretation of the character and of the text. His brain is fucking bizarre. Yeah. No one else would come to that conclusion and no one else would manifest it in that way. But I don't think there are choices he's making, certainly in the best of his work or the most, you know, compellingly weird of his work. There's nothing that's just kind of like, I don't know, I was just bored. I just fucking did something, you know? Uh-huh. There's always some like Byzantine sort of like chain of thought that gets to, so he has to be a guy who does this. 
or he wears this, or his right. braces like this. And it's the same with the Jenna Rowland stuff, which, like, uh, I'm realizing also another uh, uh, tricky G name, because I feel like a lot of people call her Gina Rollins, yeah. which is wrong. She That's falls into part the, of the, the trap. That's why I love her. That's part of the bond. You two are more similar maybe than I realized. Yeah. Um, but yes, but th- there's there's that similar thing with her where she makes these choices where you're like, where does that possibly fucking come from? But none of it feels like... I remember when I, my, I was you know pretentious, like uh, high school film nerd, and in the early 2000s, Criterion put out Can't a box set it. of his movies. <laughs> yeah, very different from how I look, sound, and behave now. <laughs> You, a nerd? Wildly different. A boyish nerd. <laughs> um, just wants to talk about movies all the time and expects people to listen to him. Um, but my, and the my world mom, rose up to meet you. Yeah. <laughs> um, my mom got me this box set when it came out because she was like, this feels like a thing you should be into. Uh, and my dad went like, Cassavetes, that's just like acting class exercises. This might have truly been a, like, me opening a present Christmas morning and my dad being uh-huh. like, that shit sucks. <laughs> like, that's, is like, your pretentious. Dad a, is your dad an actor? <laughs> no. My dad worked in independent film for years. Oh, okay. <laughs> and then now teaches. My mom was was a failed actor. I think I could say that without her being insulted in a podcast we'll never listen to. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but it does speak hey, to... Hey, no shame in being a failed actor. Hey. Cheers. Cheers. No, I come from a, a a long tradition of failed actors, and then my dad uh, wanted to be a sportscaster and ended up sort of working in the business side of independent film. So th- yeah, like watching a movie like this, he's just like, "What? What the fuck is this shit?" Well, the, as you talk about, like, it's like I'm almost excited now to watch another Cassavetes because everything you talk about about the the mentality behind it, which I kind of get. Um, and I always thought it was cool in the way that there's like punk bands or like alt, like kind of like art rock musicians. And you said it's like talking about a band where like, I'm like, I think they're cool. Mm -hmm. I don't put on that music when I'm hanging out. (laughs) I'll put on counting crows. Like, like I'm not cool, but the idea of that shit is so cool to me. The idea of Cassavetes is so cool. And I think also I've referenced this before, but like there are some movies that I watch that I so greatly want to understand and follow and watch in this way that I'm used to ingesting Mm -hmm. content where I'm like, okay, cool. And I'm really going to like take away what I'm supposed to take away from this. And it, the disconnect I feel in trying to do that ruins the experience for me. And it sounds like because I the example I mentioned before is like the first time I saw Inherent Vice, I like Mm. wanted to follow the mystery Mm -hmm. so closely that I like ended up being disappointed by it. And then when I watched it again and just like watched every scene and was like, this scene is good. Yeah, (laughs) I didn't care anymore. And I think that's also it sounds like how you have to watch his movies where you just don't you're not going to like get the whole picture you just have to be comfortable being uncomfortable with like not knowing where it's going exactly and just go like, yeah, what am I seeing right now? And like, is it cool? And it usually is. You know, another movie I keep thinking about as we're talking about this is Wanda. 
Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, it comes out of a very similar like yes. moment. And, it's and on my attitude. list. It's on my watch list on Criterion. It's also, I mean, that one's interesting because it's she's the star and the director. So unlike yeah. the Jenna Rollins Cassavetes, where it's a marriage and but he's writing and directing these for her, she created this for herself uh, with Wanda and. Um, but once again, it's like another performance that I would like aspire to and this sort of very difficult to make, not successful in its initial release, right? It's the only movie she ever directed, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, and I think the thing, the reason why this movie is my favorite of his and certainly my favorite performance of hers is it's not just that the the, the sort of meta aspect of it makes it interesting, but that it's like, the fundamental theme of the movie is her trying to figure out a way to express something more honest, right? Mm -hmm. Like, this is the yeah. movie that kind of feels like it is about Cassavetti's whole thing, you know? Right. And, and yes. her no, whole it does, thing. It does feel that, it feels true to probably both of them and what their process is of right. like, there's gotta be another layer outside of, even if there is a script and even if I'm doing the script, yeah. that there's something else to find in here that I haven't found yet. Um, to make and, uh, people connect yeah. to it. And then there's this odd sort of like genre element to this movie where it's like a low-key psychological yeah. No, thriller. it's like a Polanski, yeah. like sort right. of like, like you don't know what's real and what's not uh, tension happening at certain points and you're yeah. inside this person's head who's having a nervous breakdown actively and having like moments of catharsis that don't solve their problem. Yes. Well, that's, uh, that's, that's really I, something that I think about a lot is because um, people will talk about uh, acting in a role that like turns up a lot of things for you personally, or you have to like take yourself to a certain place to, to do the role and then referring it to his therapy. But I'm like, I, I don't find any resolution from that. No. I don't find that I've like personally as myself worked through anything in my life. I've, I've done the job of the actor, but it's not the same thing as like actually, uh, understanding and experience or feeling any sense of closure. So it's like, that's yeah, that's I, cool. That's an interesting thing. I, I don't think I've ever heard articulated or seen explored the way it is in this, where she's seeing this young avatar of herself that's like kind of haunting and torturing her. And she ultimately, and we'll speed through the plot, I think on this, but like yeah. she murders her. And in a lot of movies that would be like, now it's solved. Yes. And it's yeah. like, no, now what do I do? Yeah. Yeah. That, that didn't fix it my larger issue. <laughs> um, and so uh, I I know that I was like interested by the fact that it was just like, was did not, was not presented as a solution, it was just like something she did that did slay this one psychological demon and then still had all these other problems. But hearing you say that like, that is the thing of acting of like, you go and explore these dark corners and then you come out of it and it's just like, Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and now that's all churned up. Yeah. Yeah. And then, I mean, it is also the interesting thing, like a little moment in the movie where uh, Ben Gazzara is talking to her on the phone. And he's like, I know it's so hard to be out of town. Like that feeling of being on location also or mm. doing a play 
out of town where you're so removed from your life and she's going back to that really bizarre hotel room. I want to know that location. I'm sorry. That like the the, oh, the hotel room apartment basketball court oh, that she's yeah. living yeah. in. Yeah. Well, it's all yeah. it's a they're saying it's New Haven, but yes. it's not. It's not. This that's not the Long Wharf Theater. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my aunt and uncle had a, a membership at the Long Wharf Theater. Okay, yeah. I saw one of the guys from Frasier in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Um, well, fun. So uh, the movie was shot or like Pasadena, like Pasadena Playhouse. So it must be an LA location. But my little joke at, that I thought of as there going in and out of each other's room so much in this was that, and I don't know why like certain pieces of technology do stick in your head now when you watch older things, but I'd like to do a shot for shot remake where people kind of struggle with the magnetic key card. Every uh-huh. time. <laughs> yeah. Because it is like, it just does feel weird to see people going in and out of hotel rooms where they need a key. It's just like an actual so that's right. been gone for so long. Yeah, it's weirder almost than people using like rotary phones to me. <laughs> it's just imagining the, the the person at the check in desk of a hotel giving you a physical metal object that is yeah. like unique. Well, and to have the like housekeeper like trying different keys on a key ring to like yeah. let you. It's just like this is strange. Um, yeah. But I want to get a little bit into the story of it, like, uh, and I just want to say the very first thing we see, as you said, as they're setting props, is there's this big thing about them wetting down her oh, hair yeah. for her because she likes her hair to look wet on stage. And, and how wet is the right amount of wet? This sort of yes. feeling. I mean, and you talking about it starting almost like mid-sentence. It's like, this is not the first performance. You're seeing a conversation that is part of kind of an ongoing negotiation of yeah. clearly some nights it's been too wet and other nights it's been too dry. It hasn't been wet enough. So it's like she likes it wet. They've got a spritz bottle. But yeah. that to me, because so much of it is like she's losing her mind and there's things where people want her to have more agency, mm-hmm. but they all adjust to her at all times. And it did feel like a good illustration of there's a little bit of a theme of like actor as toddler mm-hmm. yes and everything is being provided to them and everyone is kind of like trying to avoid their meltdowns and like soothe them and also they're very special and um i don't have much experience with this but i have talked to other actors about it where it's like i think it does break your brain in some ways yes. to be so specifically catered to and to have like your favorite kind of drink is stocked everywhere and there's a chair for you and there's like everyone kind of treating you like royalty and simultaneously the thing i do have experience with is like and you're kind of not allowed to go to the bathroom without telling anyone but that's why I, i think it's a key revelation that you have to have as an actor is they're treating you like that because they need to know where you are at all moments of the day and time so you don't waste time and money when they're actually ready to shoot the thing. But if you go into that experience and think they're treating me like this because I'm the most special person here, then yes, it can get very confusing. But well, people are very nice. Yes, too. very nice. Like, they're but like, they, do you need anything? Do you need? And it's like, because like, I don't want you to, you to fucking go wander. anywhere. I want want to know where you are at all times and I'm going to get yelled at if I don't know where you are. 
But I sometimes wish people would just say to actors, like, just you have to tell us where you go. And when you don't come out of your trailer when we call you, that is costing us money. And when we get to the end of the scene and you want to do another take and we don't have time for it, it it is in part if you didn't come. I, I just wish sometimes there are just more practical conversations. Yeah. Yes. Like it, that we're all the same team. And I totally understand that when you're chatting at, at you know, Crafty and you're drinking the coffee and you had to wait for us to light the scene. And so what is it to wait five more minutes? Like you, we're going to all pay for that at the end of the night. But yeah, it, it, it can get very confusing when everyone is suddenly... Yes, stocking your favorite drinks and saying, "Oh, don't you worry about that. I'll get it for you." Mm-hmm. Um, and and I have to always, yeah, have that narrative of like, it this is, is some, just like, so I don't cost them money. Carryover right. of like an old, like you're the talent and the talent is special, and you have to be treated. But it's also like, but you're also cattle. Like yes. you're also like, and I, so I, I go even beyond that. I mean, I think what's so wild about it is right. There is this feeling of like, oh, they're like weighted on hand and foot. They're catered to. They're every whim on set, and certainly people at whatever wildest upper strata of superstardom for them yeah yeah exactly (laughs) but it's like their evian spray yeah beyond like oh oh you're sort of being infantilized all this stuff it's like no the the core thing is not just the decisions you make cost us money and time so we need to manage you and have eyes on you and all of that but it's like you're basically treated like a piece of equipment right yes even if there's sort of more like shine and prestige around that equipment the, the PAAs who are trying to keep tabs on you are sort of like, if they wander off and they're missing for 15 minutes, it's as if I lost a canister of film, you know? Or I yeah. put the camera out in the sun and I let it overheat and now it won't turn on, you know? Mm-hmm. And but so it's an this, irreplaceable part, a piece of film, of equipment. Ab- That's absolutely. like, the, yeah, right. it's like... And it's the I, thing that has the most well, like, that, insurance policies tied yeah. to it. That comes up in the like, mood, like they're, when right. she's like totally broken, they're just like, we cannot replace this person. Yes. Like it's just yes. too late. And like anytime I've been an important actor on a set, and this probably tells me something, I've also been in some capacity like a producer or something like <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like I've never I've never really had it where it's like in between I'm not also part of a conversation of like what is costing right. us money and shit. Well, it's an interesting but, thing because she's both like being catered to, like you said, with the prop person and mm-hmm. her dresser and everything. But it's also like she has a, a fundamental problem with the script that maybe she's not being super articulate about, but they're also kind of refusing to address that with her as well so it's like that that also that frustration of like um we want you for your talent we want you for your like she is a famous actress in this yeah but we don't we're not treating you like a creative equal um we are we're trying to either plow through your concerns or placate you in the moment or do any of these things but it it also just doesn't feel like anyone's taking her seriously as somebody who might have a legitimate issue what's the thing you said about like wishing that the conversations you had on set were more practical as an actor the way people speak to you rather than treating you with like kid gloves is that there is an emotional dishonesty to how most people are talking to you you know 
and, mm-hmm. and even this thing that does, Sean, to your point, like break people's brains of like, oh my God, I have like 20 butlers. Every PA is like tying my shoes for me. And it's like, no, they're trying to like mitigate risk and cost, but, well, and but it's done in the guise too, of, yes. Like uh, just to say, like, it does make you insane that you're like, yes. if people weren't happy with what I was doing right now, no one would say, hey, we're really unhappy with what yeah. you're doing right now. That's of never going to happen. Well, so or, or rarely, not never. rarely, <laughs> not never. Um, it won't happen until it's like the last resort or if the person is just like a jerk. Which but, this whole movie is is about that sort of negotiation. I mean, when you said like you texted and said, like, is there a, a, a movie about acting you'd want to do other than obviously Garden State? I know your favorite movie of all time. It's like this is the one I always think of, of not necessarily being the best representation of like uh, of acting. But I think the best representation of the psychology of being an actor and mm-hmm. especially the weird like what it does to you three decades into a career if your right. whole world is getting distorted around this thing in a job that is in and of itself a, a self-imposed form of psychological manipulation, right? You're yeah. constantly just sort of twisting yourself in weird directions. Even if you're the most surface level, superficial, non-methody actor ever, there's the basic thing of like, if you fake something enough times, your body starts reacting as if it's real. You know, even if you're just like tricking yourself into crying and you're not feeling anything, it does start to have these weird effects on you. And to your point, like what you were saying about people who go, this is therapy for me. I hit some I had some breakthrough or whatever, but it doesn't really resolve the thing. There's the other side of this, which is fascinating, which I think this movie's kind of in conversation with, with, which is sometimes people can have these moments of insane catharsis, feel like they touch the sky, they hit something really honest, and it does not come across in the final product whatsoever. It doesn't work. And then the take Mm -hmm. where you just stared at the light for two minutes so that your eyes were watering before they called action is the one that feels real. Ooh, I'm going to steal that. (laughs) I do it all the Uh, time. But it's it's that weird pursuit suit and then like her trying to argue for her agency of something feels wrong here there's something we should be getting and we're not everyone's just trying to appease her she's on to something there's something broken in the show but all of her complaints are also being filtered through she's feeling that she's at the beginning of the end of her peak relevancy right well i want to get to that because i because we're going to lose gillian and i want to ask my first and maybe my biggest like just pure acting question that was inspired by this because there's this kind of theme that comes back. This thing about her younger self mm-hmm. and that when she feels like when she was 17 or at, later she says 18, um, that she was a better performer because her emotions were so close to the surface and she had so much access to them. And as she's like gotten older and lived more life, that it's more false and harder to reach in and get the things that she needs from herself. And I was curious for you both as more like real actors, do you connect to this? Do you feel not even necessarily to the age thing, but do you feel, I do feel I have a version of this, but that you've gotten better or worse? Like, do you feel like you've continually gotten better at your craft and learned more? Or do you feel like there've been phases or events in your life that have made you better or worse at what you do? I think that when I was a kid, I loved acting with my whole heart and I had boundless enthusiasm and passion for it. And I didn't know what I was doing. And I don't know that I was very good. 
And then I went to an acting school, which was so heavily technique and voice and speech and um, controlled. And they didn't really like me very much as an actor there. And so I felt like I had sort of lost that um, pure love of I had of acting. But I also was very uh, conflicted about totally taking on their technique because I felt like it was sort of training us to be in a kind of like uh, 30s film, like the mid-Atlantic speech that they were training us to do. I felt like I would never work if I spoke like that. (laughs) And so they didn't like me, I think in part because I was refusing to talk like that, but they had convinced me I wasn't a very good actor. Right. And so I kind of graduated feeling like I don't even know that I like acting anymore. Did Did I only like acting before because the adults in my life told me I was good at it? And I got parts doing plays in Pittsburgh and and everyone in the theater was nice to me. Is that why I liked acting or did I actually like acting? And now they've convinced me I'm not very good at acting, but I've just spent four years only studying acting and I don't know what else to do. And so now I have to try and make the best of it. Um, And so I feel like for me, it's trying to always like get back to that first feeling I had about it. But I do feel like I've gained a lot of technique and I've, I think I've learned a lot from working with other actors. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I do feel like I am a much better actor now than I was at 17 when I loved it with my whole heart and soul. But I do feel like something has been lost and maybe that's just like, everyone becoming an adult loses something of childhood. So, but I do feel like I have moments of feeling like I'm, I'm growing as an actor and moments where I definitely feel like, am I any good at this at all? Were they right? Like, I'm not very good at the, sorry, (laughs) I didn't get emotional, but, um, yeah, I totally, that's what I, I, that, that's why I also think I responded so much to this movie is because, I understand that like she's having her own internal struggle and then she's also having all the people working on the show responding to her and that that conflict between self and like the highest ideal that you hold for yourself as an actor. And then sometimes you're in something you're just trying desperately to make it feel real for yourself. Um, Ooh, sorry. No, my whole goal was to make you upset before you leave. <laughs> I was just like, Griffin was talking. I was like, I'm kind of hoping Gillian will cry. <laughs> we'll have like, like a, 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 a negative emotional experience <laughs> before before she leaves the studio. She's so nice to do a favor and come down here. You must be punished. <laughs> hey, I hear what you're saying. Um yeah, I mean, you know, it's like uh, I'm not really I don't really think of myself as an actor anymore. Like, but that's what I wanted to do. And I did get into it like doing plays growing up. And I did feel like ah, I love this and I can just do it. Yeah. Like I can like make feelings and make people feel something. I remember doing like a play, you know, when I was like 19, where I had like the big spotlight monologue and like the moment where I was like there to make people cry and I'm almost crying and I hear some in the audience when I have like my big line just going, Jesus Christ. Like I was just like, I'm fucking wrecking. Like, and I had this feeling that 
I've never had again that I don't I couldn't imagine having access to. But I feel like I moved so far away from that thing. And a lot of my identity and my idea of myself was like, I, this is something I'm good at. I can do this. I'm going to perform. People are going to want to put me in their thing. And um, I didn't like fully go all into it the way that you did and the way that you did. And like um, when I went to UCB and started learning improv and started learning to write on my feet, I feel like I became a confident stage mm -hmm. performer. But that that idea of like exploring emotions and like effect that was out the window i was coming up with comedy premises in front of everyone <laughs> and that became something that i was like better at and i feel like i just totally lost like all the muscles to do those things that you're talking about and so um just to say i connect to and relate to the idea in this movie of like there is a version of me or a version of my life where I'm like a really good actor <laughs> that like makes people feel things and explores these things and does this stuff and um, have had very few small opportunities to like do it again. And even when I feel something, it doesn't feel the same. And then, uh, and then you have, that some of the self-doubt yeah. that you were just talking about of like well what am i doing like uh and it's very hard because you're i don't know it's like your your identity and you're in front of people or you're in front of a camera and it's like a lot of pressure i'd not uh, sorry to not let you speak but no no i think that that's also the confusing thing about it being an actor is that it's 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 you it feels like you as a person that they're criticizing too. Yeah, like yeah. you can get notes on a script or notes on a cut of something that you're directing and there's an element of distance but it's about like i just remember yeah doing a take and having a director be like don't make those faces and you're like oh yeah. it's like me <laughs> it's like you know yeah. it's, it's my face <laughs> there's you know and, and so i think also if you're in a if you're in a circumstance with a director or a writer like she's in with in this movie where it's like they're clearly not happy. She's clearly not happy. It's like they then start trying to psychoanalyze her. They in front of her to yeah. her, you know, tell her about herself. Mm -hmm. um, and that can be very confusing if you don't have a really strong sense of self too, yeah. to be told about yourself like that. Well, and, and like if you're fortunate enough to be able to make a career as an actor, you get there through a gauntlet of countless auditions where you are spoken about and and not hired, not getting to do the full thing, right? But like mm -hmm. turned, like commodified into this idea where people are giving you that feedback in real time. And I think about like so many auditions I went on when I was young where casting directors would be like, you know, people I'd never met before. And they'd be like, you're good. I like your whole like pathetic, like self-loathing thing. And you just go like, right. My thing is I'm like pathetic and self-loathing. You just kind of like absorb it as like, okay, if that's what you're telling me I am, that's how I frame myself as. That's what I'm selling. That's what it, I'm putting forward. Yeah, you know, and you, your own internal concept of yourself. Totally. Yeah. But in a way that's weirdly kind of disassociative, like you're trying to conjure up whatever the thing is that innately people are recognizing and you are responding to. And then all of what you were saying about like going to, to acting programs and stuff is like 
there's this weird thing of you start out doing this thing that feels very intuitive to you, right? I mean, like actors always talk about like, it was great. I felt like I was a kid again, just like playing pretend like their best performances were the ones where they felt like they got back to that thing. You start there and then over time it gets formalized with all of this technique. And a lot of that technique is just like how to work around the weird rigors of productions, you know, the stop and starting of doing anything on camera. Or if you're doing theater, the fact that you have to replicate the performance over and over and over again, that you need to learn technique that makes you more professional, that, uh, you know, formalizes whatever innate sort of instincts, intuition, joy, uh, access you have into something that you can hit consistently. But then there's a point in the bell curve where you do feel like I've put so much technique around this, I'm, I'm no longer honestly grabbing a thing that I used to be able to pull off a shelf. You know, the thing that she mm -hmm. sort of talks about, this younger version of herself that I think she looks at as so much more naive and scared, but also has a thing that she knows she can't totally get back. And this movie is her struggling to but figure out some think, way to ben, pull it all like, away. Like, what do you really think acting it? Because that they get into that so much of like yeah. what technique and you hear other, some actors are like. Whatever the famous like Lawrence Olivier telling Dustin Hoffman like just try, try acting, acting. Yeah. and like yeah. certain you'll see some great actors who go like you just pick a way to say the line that sounds <laughs> right. like how you would say it and they're like and they're awesome and you're like yeah. okay that's cool and then there's other people who are like feel like they need to live it and then of course all the whatever the British actors are all like you have to have the technique because you're yeah. not sometimes you might feel it but when you don't feel it you still have to do your yeah. fucking job. You so if you don't have up. technique, yeah. like, what are you going to do? Just be on stage like Jenna Rollins in this? Going, Just like, collapse. I don't feel anything. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, so it makes sense. So like, what do you, what do you guys think it is? Or like what? It like, well, the at other its thing, core. The other like, thing I would add to that, which is like something I had to learn, um, is that you're also telling a story. It's not just about you chasing an emotional truth and like you feeling good about what you just did it's like how are you telling the story of the movie or the play or the tv show and so well yeah you exist as a part of a whole yes yeah and so i feel like that's something i really had to learn as well that like what you were saying about somebody could really feel like they experience something transcendent and then it doesn't read right um later that can also be because it's about their own personal exploration and it doesn't actually service that scene, you know, or it, it's not telling the story. Um, and that's the part of like the weird way in which you are a piece of equipment is that like you're you're here to serve a specific function. You know, there's a thing you need to accomplish in your role in this thing. I had I had a great acting teacher who sadly passed away named Elizabeth Kemp. And she would do like a weekly sort of scene study class where people could bring in anything they wanted to work on or had to work on or whatever. And I remember, and this was the moment I was like, fuck, she's a really good teacher. Because there's a lot of acting education that is someone imposing on you, this is what works for me. Or I was trained mm. in this school and this yeah. is the one empirical way to do it. When the reality is, when you're asking Sean what acting is, it's like, it's a fucking billion things and it's none yeah. of it. I mean, a thing I find fascinating about this movie is the guy, uh, the sort of handsome, mustachioed actor in yeah, the show. I love him, yeah, Gus. It's incredible. And he was a crew guy who worked on a bunch of Cassavetti's movies. And was like, I don't know, you look like a leading man. You have the right vibe. And he had no acting experience. And oh, he's wow. like 
holding his own with everyone else in this fucking movie. And it's like, sometimes it is just existing. Sometimes it is you're the right person. And if you just stand there and you look at the person and you say the things, it sounds right. And sometimes you're going really deep in on something. But this acting class, there were two people who put their scenes up back to back. And one was a guy who wanted to do Barefoot in the Park, the Neil Simon Mm -hmm. play. And he starts doing it at this scene with another actor in the class. And she stops him and she just goes like, why Why did you pick this? Why do you want to do this? Mm. And he was like, uh, I don't know. I've always wanted to do this. And she's like, right. No, I can tell you like the play and you find it charming. But all I'm getting out of this is that you saw other people doing this and you want to do it right now. There's like nothing you're connecting to in this actual text. There's nothing you seem to be like really activating on in this character specifically outside of you just watching it and enjoying it. You know, it was basically saying like, you need to find some way to go deeper and connect. And then the next guy gets up and he does Cat in a Hot Tin Roof and he's playing the alcoholism and he's playing the physical infirmity or whatever. And he's like really going deep in it. And he's like convulsing and shaking. And it's one of those things where clearly like he got to a place emotionally where everything that character is feeling physically suddenly felt real to him. And she just stopped him and went like, okay, so now we know you can do that. That's good for you to know that you can go there. I don't totally know what it accomplishes. And I'm making her sound a lot more blunt than she was because I think she had a really good hand about this. But she was just sort of saying like, that is impressive that you have that access and that you have that control and that technique. That does not aid in telling a story, really, to have to go to that extent, you know? And it was watching two people back to back at contradictory notes. And she wasn't trying to bring them both to the middle. But it was the sort of like, what is your job relative to what you are being asked to do here? You know? And it's like both the part you're playing, the people you're working with, the circumstances. It's where like all the weirdness of being an actor comes in of like, your job's very different depending on what the budget of the production is. Yeah. You know, not not how much you're getting paid, but how much the amount of money that exists for the thing overall and the amount of the time available to do each scene totally. like that. That's mm-hmm. also, I think, some people who like acting school, they have a hard time with the profession of it because it feels like it's endless time for exploration when you're in school or or if it's a long rehearsal process Rehearsals, for a play. Yeah. yeah. And um that, as we all know, is like so rarely the case with anything scripted that you've like. You, if you're really in love with that, it can be very difficult when it's like you get to set, they've already blocked it, they've they've already lit it, here are your marks, and let's yeah. go. You know, that is that is very far away from acting class. But so, yeah, it's like what you're saying again about technique, it's like for each circumstance, like how do I, how do I um, do all of that internally for myself so that I can show up and do this very quickly Or when I do have more time, can I really like push myself past my first instinct of what I think the scene is into something new and unexpected and surprise myself? I guess that's my version of the like, I felt like I was a kid again is like, I surprised myself with what I did. It wasn't planned. It wasn't like my intellectual understanding of the story or the character, but it was like that married with like impulse. And and that's what I love about Jenna Rollins is that like, Mm -hmm. I feel like she's in service of the character. She's not fighting any of that but she's also like let the um the regulator off of her brain enough that she lets herself do the weird unexpected things 
And, and this movie is like, you know, her saying there's something I've lost along the way. There's something that's not working in this show. We have to go deeper. We have to find something different. And as you said, people say this to her face where they're like, Let's cut the bullshit. You don't like that you're playing an older woman, Mm -hmm. that this role represents you transitioning to a different stage of your career and perhaps to a different stage of your relevancy. And you're worried that if you do this and do it well and commit to it, there's no coming back. Yeah. Talking about your like self-loathing, like the self-loathing nerd thing or whatever they said to you. I I wonder because that's like so she whatever she does the play. She sees this young woman get hit by a car. She Who's feels like, a like mega that fan is her younger self. Like it becomes a symbol of yeah. it. And it's this woman who like worships her, who's a fan of her. She feels responsible for that. And then she's struggling with a lot of things. But one of them is she's playing someone older. She's kind of going like, you see me as older, which to me means my career is over. Right. And if I do this and I wondered for you guys because i know griffin you maybe mentioned like this is the last time i play an assistant or something like there was yeah. some oh I some archetype yes. that you've yes. been cast per- as that you're assistant. like if i keep yeah. taking this role i'll never be able to do anything else and Correct. have you felt like oh um if i do a good job or if i really embody this person on camera or on screen that i'll be seen that way so thoroughly that like I'll totally cut off my options to do what's actually exciting to me after. Sometimes I still just feel like I I'm I just want to get another job. So yeah. you know yeah. it, there's there's also that like element of an actor's career where from a distance it can look so considered and chosen, and then sometimes it's like these are of the opportunities presented to me. These are the ones that I want to do the most. To your point, Sean, like I I did have that moment in maybe 2017 or 2018 when I was basically like 10 years into doing this as a career where I was like, I have to stop playing assistants. I've done it too many times. I think I've done it as well as I could do it. Yeah. Uh, And and, and the bigger part of it was I felt I was getting bad. Like Mm. I could feel myself going into presets of this is scene number four. I know the yeah. four different types of scenes I play as someone who is a little frazzled and walks in and tells them who's online to or hands them the paperwork or gets insulted to his face and then goes like, no offense taken or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And I was going into those presets in a way where I was just like, I, 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 you know, I feel grateful to be doing this, but I can feel myself getting kind of cynical about the way I do it. And I want to cut this off before it really turns into something a little more like malignant, you know? Yeah. Uh, but the moment I made that decision, I I started working less. Like it was a thing. I The yeah. thing I was most marketable at doing and most proven at doing, and where it got to a point where I was starting to get jobs, I was not a name, but I would get jobs because, and I would be told this, they'd be casting something, they'd need an assistant, they couldn't find anyone. The director or the producer would see some other thing on TV where I played an assistant. They'd go, just get that guy. He does the You're thing. You're the type. Yeah. You have- You're yeah. the type. And so I sort of developed a little bit of a marketable type for myself, but I felt I was losing some of the joy of doing it and getting worse at it. And so I like drew a line in the sand and my career immediately like shifted, it throttled down. But that's, you know, it's a risk you have to take sometimes. Like I know for me, even with writing, you write for a specific type of show, like the first, like three of the first four shows I wrote for were animated. Mm -hmm. And it was like, if you take another animation job, 
you're an animation writer now. Mm. Like, yeah. and I had a friend who had worked on a handful of multicam shows and he like heard like an agent refer to him as like, this is our like hot young multicam writer. And he was like, I have to. And I think he had to take like a year off of mm. work to try to like get new samples and make new yeah. contacts and get into a new realm because you get you get branded a certain way in the industry and whatever your job, the kind of thing you direct or the kind of thing that you write and you're I mean, acting. Do you fall think, into this? Like everyone falls into this where it's like, you're a good comedy sound guy. But I don't know whether it was, yes, yeah. I Whether it was intentional, but I do feel like Gillian, you know, like I obviously first saw you in Community mm -hmm. where you were this very type A, like sort of like, almost had like a little bit of like a, wet blanket roll and then the next thing i saw you in was love which like couldn't have been more disparate of just like this person who was like sort of unhinged and like you know like you went you basically played like the ego and the it uh -huh. in the first two most visible things yeah and i feel like maybe that was yeah. great because it's like yeah. now you know it's like you're not seen as the assistant like the one thing mm -hmm. it's so funny because i had been playing so many more parts like mickey on love previously to community uh -huh. but just in like tiny independent films or things that no one saw so it was funny to me because community was very atypical for me uh personally in terms of what i had done before and the types of parts i had played and so for love felt much more in alignment with things I had maybe done before community. But yeah, mm -hmm. for people who had only ever seen, me, which was most 99% of people had only ever seen me on community, love was like very different. And yeah. I felt very lucky and probably tried to steal from Jenna Rollins a lot um, <laughs> in that performance, <laughs> consciously or unconsciously. Um, but yeah, I, I think, I also think that the way I've tried to like, connect back to that love of acting is also trying different things mm -hmm. doing different like um like i really love doing voices on animated shows yeah and that feels very free well that's the best job in the world yeah like, I, i've gotten to do it a couple times and i would just oh it's so fun because also i think like you know it's annoying acting on camera <laughs> Yeah. Because there's so many things to be aware of yeah. where it's like, it's this prop and you got to move here and the other person's here and this is where the camera is. And then like this side, you know, they're only shooting the other person's side. You want to give them something, but you don't want to give them everything. Like, and then when you're just doing a voice, it's so granular of controlling yeah. your performance mm -hmm. of like every syllable will sound exactly the way I want it to. And I don't have to think about anything else. And like that is like a pure uh, acting thing. Yeah. You know, I, I think there's another part of it, too, because I've like the last five years, I, I really started shifting my priorities over to voice acting because the first voice acting job I got, I did have that feeling of like, oh, this feels like I'm back in what I originally liked about this. Yeah. It yeah. feels like a lot of the weird um practicalities and frustrations of doing this as a job are are falling away and because it's so laser focused but there is that like there's um there's the feeling where you're like doing take after take of something and you're like fucking close to something and I'm not getting it 
or you have the idea late that mm-hmm. maybe would fuck up continuity. And you're mm-hmm. like, this is how I should have been doing it an hour ago. And you kind of oh, yeah. go to the director or someone and you go like, I'm sorry, can I try this? And everyone's kind of like, we're 30 minutes behind. People want to go to lunch or it's the end of the day. Everyone's going to have to pick up their equipment again and do their job to let you take a swing at doing the wild one, the something different, whatever it is. And sometimes, very rarely, it's like, I'm glad you asked for that. That was it. You found the thing there. Great. And then like 99 times out of 100, you go like, I'm sorry, apologies, apologies. It didn't work. It didn't work. Whereas with like voice acting, the, the granular aspect of it is also freed up in like, Try it a billion ways. This doesn't they cost literally us ask. Yeah, anything. can you give me three completely different ways yep. in a row? Right, like just like com- just something. However, you planned on doing it. Yeah. Then the opposite. Then yes. just like a totally yeah. fucking weird one. Contradictory directions. <laughs> right. Yeah. Say every line like you're vomiting. Like whatever it yeah. is, and it's like it's not costing anyone anything, and that that weird preciousness that gets removed from it, I think, is very freeing and that's sort of what she I mean I'm always fascinated by movies that have to build to the point where someone does some creative work right Mm -hmm. any like the Sims and I on Blank Check always talk about the Mr. Holland's opus problem right Mm -hmm. where like the movie's built around this guy's life's work his opus and then you get to the opus and it's given all this pomp and circumstance it's the big emotional denouement of the movie and you're sitting there and you're like does this opus kind of suck? Like, yeah. am I in universe supposed to think this is good? Did the people Music's who made the this movie one, I feel totally like, like that one ends up being like if it's a visual artist, you're kind of like for me, I'm like eh, maybe you know, like <laughs> yeah. I guess their art's good, and if it's like, and even if it's a perform, you know, like um, we've talked about, I'm both not really enjoying the movie. Birdman Griffin, but yes. like I realize how much that movie borrowed from this. Yes. Like yes. it feels so similar. Yeah. And but there is the one part of that movie that I love is when Ed Norton has a scene where it's like this actor is supposed to be so good that like you feel like everyone feels relief when they see him because his acting in the play in yeah. this scene is so amazing. And he does it. Like you're he does like it. This acting is better than the other acting I've been seeing by the good actors in the yeah. movie that everyone's been acting in. Like, this is cool, but it's so rare to see it's that. It's so rare. And it's yeah. like, right, it requires just like top level skill to depict top level elite skill like that. And yeah. this movie is all about her working through this. Like, I need to break this play and find something different in it. And everyone questioning, are you doing this out of self-preservation? Are you justifying your own sort of vanity and insecurity and making this into a creative problem when you really just don't want to be seen as old? Or you don't like the idea that you're in this? And then you get to this final performance where you're watching it and you're like, is this good or not? I know. And that's yeah. kind of the point. Well, there's an amazing thing where actually to even... It will will skip forward, but to back yeah. up over the opening credits, they have this very sinister sounding applause and laughter with like creepy music under it. And it's basically like, do not trust the audience's response, which makes sense with that Casavetti story you mm-hmm. tell, because there there are performances where she is just like totally off the fucking wall, like fucking up the show. 
And the audience is laughing of like, I guess this is the show. We like it because this person is a famous actress and whatever she's doing must be good. Like the auspices or whatever, make it like, I guess this is good. And the audience will like it afterwards. And they're going like, no, they shouldn't. And you are in that position as the audience at the end of going like, I guess I love it. Like, I guess this is what we were building towards. And But they don't let you off the hook ever. No, he wasn't directing the audience at all. So it also was like, they put this up, they filled the room. The way they react is the way they react. And he was like, maybe a place to silence. And then that becomes part of it. Or maybe they laugh too much, but can you trust that? The final line of this movie is like Peter Bogdanovich, notorious, like hobnobber, sycophant, like, you know, Hollywood sort of obsessive being like, it was incredible. I loved it. And you get this feeling of like, should you actually take his word on this? Yeah. And also, has she solved the problem? Because what does she do tomorrow night? You can't mm-hmm. do that performance again. Undeniably, yeah. what happens on stage at the end of the movie is very compelling. And the yeah. audience is very entertained yes. by it, largely because it's just so weird. But you're like, is that a better plane of acting than where she was at the beginning of the movie? Yeah. It didn't. Am I wrong in saying that he originally conceived of this as a play and she said, I can't do this like seven shows a week? I think so. And he reconceived it as a movie where she's like, what you're asking me to do with this role, I can basically only do once over the course of filming the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And also, this was one of his, I'm forgetting all the finer details of it, but like, I think this movie basically shot on and off over like a year and a half or two years. They kept on running out of funding. And so this movie was like broken into different legs of production. I think the onstage stuff was basically all the stuff they shot last, if I'm not mistaken, Mm. where that was basically the final leg of production was like having this venue for five nights and filling it up with crowds and doing different performances. Mm. Um, But yes, you feel, I, I, I don't know. I certainly feel in a certain way the 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 passage of time the effort to get this movie off the ground yeah so i want to i want to run to a couple of okay. prompts um Prompt. uh i mean there's the whole thing where as we talk about she's making it about different things and at one point she makes it all about the slap she just doesn't want to mm-hmm. get slapped that's her problem with the play that she feels like she's being humiliated i was just curious if you guys have ever had like a either a thing that you fixated on of like, I can't do this. Or if you've ever had to play like a weird, like physical scene like this, I'll tell my story, which is I was in an improv show where I, I got slapped so hard that my mouth started bleeding. Oh no. At, at like an ass cat. And I like stepped into a scene where it was like, I knew I was going to get slapped. And I kind of thought the guy was probably going to do it for real. And then he just fucking hauled off on me. Um, and I was like, had to do the rest of this stupid ass fucking free improv show um but like it is a crazy thing sort of the way people and you hear this all the time in movies where it's like and the actor they were like really hit me (laughs) and you're just like don't do that um but just yeah either in like the area of that like um having to do these like stage violence things or just like getting totally convinced that like this is the one problem mm. a line change or a, a thing you needed to change in a in a project i have to go in like go ahead. 3 minutes but i'll just say that i don't have a great story for you on that but i the the director i worked with most as a kid who was like such a great mentor to me and cast me in three plays when i was growing up 
as I was going off to college and he was sort of sending me into the world of being an actor, I remember him saying to me, never do anything as an actor that the director won't demonstrate for you themselves. <laughs> like oh, if, yeah. if someone's asking you to do something that feels like wild and dangerous and crazy and they won't demonstrate it themselves, don't do it, which I just thought was like such a like I could just see it now as it's like fatherly figure sending me off into the world of like, don't. It's a great rule. <laughs> yeah. And on that note, I got to go, guys. Okay, well, thank you so much oh for my stopping God. by. Sorry Gillian. to be so abrupt. No. <laughs> um, no, we, it's, you know, we, we, we all talk too much. And, um, uh, I like talking. But thank you so much for Oh, my coming. God, I really this is so much it. fun. Okay, actually, I have one more story that I think is, is good for this moment, too. Okay. Which is if I haven't told my famous scorpion story. Have I, have I talked about acting with a scorpion? I don't so, think I've ever heard this story. No. I was in a cell phone commercial where part of the premise was that I got stung by a scorpion. And the opening of the commercial, I'm on the phone with Ben Schwartz. <laughs> and he's talking to me and I go, something just bit me. And then he, I show him a photo with my phone and it's a scorpion. The phone saves my life. It gets me to the hospital, to directions, everything. Mm -hmm. But in doing it, I'm like uh, just sitting on the couch in shorts and they put a live scorpion next to my leg and they need it like moving towards me. And... I'm like, is it, what do you, like, they take the venom out of it or something? And, and then the, the handler, what I'll say about the handler is if you put him in a lineup of about a hundred people and I asked you to pick out which one of these gentlemen is a scorpion handler, <laughs> you would not have trouble identifying him. Uh -huh. Big, big scorpion handler energy so, coming up. I this was guy. like, I was like. You take the venom out of him? Like, what? How does this work? And he was like, "Oh no, you can't take the venom out of a scorpion." <laughs> like, he's like, "That they, they'll they won't eat. They can't sting it. They won't eat it." You know, he's <laughs> like, yeah. "Okay." And so it's like, so it will really hurt if I get. He's like, "Yeah." And then it's just holding still on the couch next to me, and they're filming it. And the director starts to go like, "Can't we get it moving?" <laughs> it's like, he's like, "If you want," and. Then, he like takes a pair of tongs and starts like, he's got like gloves and tongs and shit. It's like that far from my leg. And he's like from far away working it and just starts riling it up. And as he's getting the scorpion riled up, he's going, oh, he's getting hot now. Oh, he's hot now. Oh, he is hot. And I'm like, are we sure that's a good thing? He's got like a fucking like wind blow thick to like blow in its face and like push yeah. it with the tongs just to get it mad so it starts like fucking shooting around the couch towards my leg and it was like such a scary thing and whatever i didn't get stuck but just like just the things that they have actors do and yes. i of course was like a fucking whatever ucb improv kid i didn't know like i should have been asking for like hazard pay or something like i was just like great no, no. And it is, I don't know. It's getting back to like the weird psychology of, of doing this for a living to any degree is like you, you have to enter into it with a certain uh, uh, lack of self-protectiveness, right? Yeah. Like truly to kind of make it, you need to put yourself into situations with willful abandon to yeah. in theory work to the place where you do feel like you have a little more agency or you can speak for yourself or fight yeah. for yourself or whatever it is. I'm and the guy who'll do thing. anything for you. 
Yeah. Totally. Right. You you want to be the person who'll do anything and do it cheaper and faster than anyone else. Yeah. Right. And with less complaining. And you talk about like things that break people's brains that they don't come back from. Uh, a lot of people, when you hear these stories of like, how is that actor such a fucking diva? Like you're telling yeah. me he makes these kinds of demands and he holds up production like this and that. I think a lot of that is like kind of long, long tail release of like, oh, you spent 15 years like eating shit and saying, thank you, please give me yeah. more, right? And you're like, and someday I'm going to get to the point where I get to set boundaries for myself. And by the point that you get there, your whole perspective has been so fucked up that you're justifying things to yourself as like, I'm right about this. I'm right to put my foot down about this. And then well, you get to things like, you know, not what what she's doing in the movie of saying like the slap feels false to me but uh-huh. you'll get to things where actors are just like i can't wear shoes in this scene and i refuse to film if i'm wearing shoes and you're like what the fuck is the shoe hang up and they just convince themselves this is the most important thing in the world and sometimes you're right about it and sometimes you're wrong and it's really yeah. hard to maintain a sense of objectivity especially when you're in the heat of like a production to, to know like uh, am i, I think- being insane or am i being right about this yeah, I think to make it actually possibly, a, you know, more widely relatable too. like outside of acting, I think if you are someone I know I have been in my life, someone who traditionally was more of a passive participant in your life, either like yeah. a people pleaser or like I know from like my whatever uh, addiction background, I just was like never actively engaged, never asked for anything for myself, was always like siloed off in different ways that when you start to assert yourself you have this feeling of like because i am standing up for myself yeah i am doing something positive and i am right yeah and that feeling is intoxicating in its own right of yes. like anytime i'm standing up for myself that is positive and yeah. you start to do it and take like too hard of stands yes. in places where they don't matter. Uh, yeah. And just like, um, and it, and that becomes hard to unwind where it's like, yes, I need to be more assertive. Yes. I need to be more protective of my own self-interest yeah. because other people won't. And also I need to collaborate with people and I, yes. I need to like, you know, be aware of everyone else's experience. And it's, it's hard to separate. No, I, I, um, I worked with uh, uh, Jackie Earl Haley played the villain on the first season, the main villain, the first season of The Tick, who uh-huh. has like, you know, one of the most fascinating acting career sort of uh, stories and trajectories of anyone where he was like this wildly successful child and teen star. And yeah. he was this sort of heartthrobby kid and like breaking away and bad news bears and all this stuff. And then he like hit his sort of awkward teen years and his look changed. Mm-hmm. And then he like had a runoff period of playing like now he's like the nerdy, horny best friend in the Tom Cruise sex comedy. Yeah. But not the one that everyone remembers, you know? And now he's playing like the weird guy in the supporting role of like the fifth string horror movie or whatever. And yeah. got to this point where by his own admission, he was like very uh, uh, bitter because it was like he had this career handed to him at a point where the acting process was still kind of pure the way we were talking about of like, you're a kid and you're playing yeah. pretend and everyone loved what he was doing and it was more, more, more. And then suddenly they're like, your vibe changed. We don't want this anymore. Yeah. We're, we're not as interested in your thing. 
And he's like, well, I didn't train to do anything. I, my whole life has been this thing. And yeah. now you're telling me like your look is wrong now. We don't know where to apply you. Your, your craft maybe hasn't changed, right? Mm-hmm. And he hit this point where he was like really bitter about the lack of work. And he was like, you know what? I just need to fucking pivot. And he like moved to San Antonio, I believe. And he started like a local um, uh, production company doing like local uh, uh, TV ads in Texas. And he was like directing and producing and doing shoots and things like that. And then he basically got pulled out of retirement by Sean Penn, who had worked with him very early on in his career. was like, what happened to that guy? I haven't seen that guy in 20 years. Hires him to play a small part in the All the King's Men remake, which doesn't go anywhere. But on that, he works with Kate Winslet, who then recommends him for Little Children. He gets the Oscar nomination. His career's back. And uh, he would always say to me, like, you work these jobs where it feels like people are challenging you to become an asshole. Right. Where they're beating you down so much or like so fucking with your sense of self that you're trying to be the people pleaser and you're trying to be the professional and whatever. And you're just like, if I don't start being like an asshole, they're never going to stop steamrolling me, you know? Yeah. Not even taking advantage of me, but like really um, kind of breaking me down. And and to to what, you know, we were saying earlier, like, you can't have the practical conversation so often. There's all this yeah. kind of weird dishonesty in the way that people speak to each other in the entertainment industry, and especially in the heat of production, where you can't be like, look, I just need to define for you. I need this for this reason. Because you do that, and you get the kind of conversation like they have with uh, Jenna Rollins in this movie, where they're like, you're just worried about being old. This is your insecurity speaking. Yeah, You're drunk. You're losing your mind. Whatever the fuck it is, right? Yeah. Whether they're right or wrong, it's so hard to know. And you have to, so often it's like you learn this defensive position of being a little bit of an asshole just to sort of fight for yourself and keep your your feet planted, which I was always so loath to do. Like, I want everyone to like me at all times. As fucked up as it is, the thing I always strove for so much in like the peak of my acting career was uh, I, I wanted people to say, and he never complains. <laughs> you know, like that was the ultimate compliment I wanted from people who worked with me. Like, yeah. he blank, 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 blank. And on top of that, he never complains. And yeah. I got to a point where I started hearing producers I'd worked with, directors I'd worked with saying that about me. And and he never complains was coming as the epilogue to a list of things I actually should have refused to do. Yeah, They were like, he put up with, now I can say this because we're not on set. Six months later, I can say, he put up with six things that were maybe illegal or inhumane or just not a fair ask. And he never complained about it. And you're like, oh, I'm like being rewarded for kind of having no dignity, you know, and like no agency in this weird kind of way. And that line is so thin and so blurry from like, Feeling like that to being an asshole, to actually just being an asshole in a, like a point of no return kind of way. Yeah, no, it's true. And I, I think like, it, it, you know, in the in some of my experiences in the writing world, too, there's a similar thing where it's like. You go in and you kind of get taught early, like, don't be too opinionated, like offer yeah. your idea, but you're you're working for that, which is true. Like you, you know, um. I tell people like, 
I actually got an argument with someone once where I was like, hey, we're like, you're like pushing back too much on that. It's like slowing the room yeah. down. Like, I, you know, uh, and they were like, well, yeah, I was like, you're just trying to help them make their thing. They were like, well, I'm being paid to have my opinion on this. And I was like, you are once. <laughs> like, uh, and I, that, and I had internalized that. But then as you become a more important voice sometimes, then it becomes like, then they're asking you to do so much where it's yes. like they want you to contribute so much of your voice to it, but also it's still not yours. No. And then you start to get like, uh, as you're alluded to as an actor, like sort of abused where it's like you're getting so much put on your plate that you can't get credit for. <laughs> yeah. Like you can only be kind of punished for if you don't deliver on it and you're in these situations like i've talked about before where like with writers where they keep you overnight or whatever and yeah. you don't have even the sag rules there's no turnaround there's nothing you know like you can work till 4 a.m and they can ask you to come in at nine yeah you know? I, mean, I think statue of limitations i could i can talk about that but like i mean that what you're describing was basically my experience on the tick which was yeah. uh, like a dream job and a thing i really wanted and i was like this is everything i want to do as an actor yeah and it's it's a, a new version of a thing that i've loved so much and been a fan of for so long and it's with the original creator and i loved all the people i worked with whatever but it was a really punishing production for a number of reasons that are it's not even salacious but just hard to get into the nitty-gritty of um yeah but i i was so eager to make it work, not just because, well, this is big for my career if this show works, but also this is the show I wanted to work on in my mind's eye. Yeah. And it, it, when you see the things that are kind of going wrong on set one way or another, I would sort of jump in front of the train and go like, I'm going to fix this thing that isn't technically my problem. Yeah. Uh, because I'm noticing an oversight here. Uh mm -hmm. And if I can do anything to contribute an idea, to step up, to do something, to help keep this afloat, I will be happy in the long run that when the episode comes out, I don't have to live with the anxiety of, and this thing sucks because this fucking happened on the day, Yeah. right? So I started sort of maxing myself out, uh, uh, trying to be cognizant of all these different things on the production. And in a way that was very rarely, if ever, advocating for myself or yeah. my particular job, my performance, my character. It wasn't that kind of stuff. It was like all of it and looking after my fellow cast members and sort of getting helping with the workflow because with TV, you have new directors coming in every week. So there's a sense of continuity that isn't always there. And it like helps to sort of whatever. Um, but it got to a point where it was just like it, it, it was expected that I would do all of that very quickly. Yeah. I was not a producer on the show. It wasn't my title and I wasn't paid. But the reason I knew I wasn't being an asshole and wasn't just like putting myself in other people's business for the sake of being a busybody was that they started just calling me in to not make these decisions, but at least help execute these things. Be a part of things. the conversation. Yeah. yeah, right. And then at that point, it's like, well, now this is like a second job. That's basically yeah. been placed on me because it's like, well, he loves doing it, right? And he loves the show and he cares about the show and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, and it was like a situation that I opted into, but it... it Well, you're being treated as a producer, which, correct. by the way, that's also like the, you know, as a, you're a writer, then you become a writer-producer. And it's so yeah. ill-defined what that means. Yes. It's just like, you're a writer and you do all the stuff you used to do. And then also you're just like in these other meetings about other things. <laughs> 
things that like, yeah. you don't understand and maybe don't have power to change, but like need to be aware of. And it's, yes. and it's crazy. Um, and that's, it, that's what you're describing is like, you're now engaged with like every department yeah. on this other stuff. That's like not what you were really hired for. It's certainly not like your core competency or whatever. No, no. And, and Barry yeah. Josephson, who is the main producer on the show and is a great producer and a really good friend of mine will like, will admit it openly as such that it was like, you basically became the other main producer on the show in a lot of ways. Yeah. And and in this way, that kind of like the credits don't uh, uh, transfer, you know, it no, was no, like, no, 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 no. Yeah. I was doing all this stuff that didn't register on screen that that didn't affect my hireability in any way, you know, going forward after the show. Yeah. But just became this sort of all consuming thing of like, you know, I, I think for whatever reason, I felt a lot of the pressure that like that, that this character, the Mabel character feels in uh, or not Mabel, Mabel's a, a woman of the influence, uh, but, but in opening night of just like. This mm-hmm. feels like this Myrtle. is Myrtle. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so she does feel she feels responsible for whether the play lives or dies. And there's a lot yes. of like there's a lot of pressure on her because she is the name. Yeah. She is. It's like this is the famous person. And everyone. Cassavetes has a thing early on where he's like, I'm a small actor. Like, I'm like not I'm not sympathetic. Like, I'm a small right. role. Like, you know, I need to just protect myself because He's it's so limited what I can do. Yes. You're, yeah, I can't, I can't allow myself to be like fully subverted to like what your process is yeah. Yeah. because I'll be consumed by it. Yeah. And like she has, as I mentioned, like she has this whole thing of like destroying her younger self and there's that entire journey. And then she's also got this, alcohol thing and like the youth is tied up in her ability to seduce i feel like is that right like she's sort of like there's this real illustration of how incestuous the theater world is and she's sleeping with apparently or has slept with the director and the main actor and the producer of the play yeah and the the young version of her that keeps appearing talks about like I like to have sex, like I like yeah. to like do the, and it's like is that part of her disappearing? I feel like after she destroys that actress, she finally goes to Cassavetti's and like really makes a hard press to like go inside his apartment, and he says no, and that sends her on the bender in some ways. Yes, no, to everyone bit, like, else, she's like an affair, and like Ben Kazira has a wife. You know, other yeah. people have like their normal sort of domestic life. And then there are the sort of dalliances that happen in the heat of theater in the past or whatever it is. Yeah. And she has really, for lack of a better term, been like married to her career. And yeah. as a woman uh, in entertainment, she understands that so much of her currency is tied to some sense of desirability, right? Yeah. And sexuality and whatever. And it's like part of her not wanting to play a quote unquote older woman well is yeah. like, well, the moment people stop wanting to fuck you, do I stop having a career? Is, I think, yeah. the crisis in her mind, right? And beyond that, it's also like, I've been married to this thing, and now I'm sort of starting to feel everyone slowly receding back more and more to their normal lives. And yeah. I never built a normal life for myself. It's all yeah. been this. You know, I and don't have, it- like, a nice house I sort of, like, settle into. I stay at weird basketball court apartments while full, like you know doing a run of a play yeah and she's around people suitcase. like that guy you reference like the great looking like mustache guy is like yeah. she's like you're gonna be so good like he she's like you're 
he's like a similar age guy, but she's like, you're just starting out. Like, yeah. Like you're gonna you're gonna have a great time. Like I am on the other side of it. And even right. when she first meets the young girl before she gets hit by a car, she says like she said she asks her how old she is, and the yeah. girl says seventeen. And you see her like almost stung by yeah. like the existence of this seventeen year old who sort of looks like a young version of her. Yeah. Like um, you know, all these things coalesce into her going on this bender and there's this whole like backstage buildup of like, is she going to make it to the show on time? Right. And she does show up and she's so fucking drunk. She can't walk. And to kind of, to me, full circle, this idea of like actor as toddler, where they like are wetting down her hair and catering her in the beginning. Yeah. They're trying, there's a guy like a stagehand who's trying to pick her up and move her into the dressing room. And Ben Gazar is like, get the fuck off her. Yeah. She's going to do it herself. And it's like, and he's going, why? What does it prove? What does it prove? And it's like, I need her to do something for herself. This is my yeah. interpretation of it. Like, yeah, no, I think I, you're right. Yes. I need her to do this for herself so that she has done something on her own right. before she gets on the fucking stage to like help her propel through the show and know that she can do it. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, you were talking about like you were asking about and I, I, I couldn't come up with a good example, but that feeling of like getting hung up on a specific thing mm -hmm. on on set. You know, I the thing that isn't working, I'm bumping on. I can't do the scene because of this jacket, the jacket you have me wearing or yeah. the part where I need to eat the sandwich is fucking up the whole scene for me. And, and everyone's like, is it about the sandwich or is the sandwich the weird distraction point of what the thing that we can't actually untangle isn't working here? Right. Um, and I, I do think it's that, it's that thing of how you put it there. There's something she knows she needs to get to, and she needs to get there herself and she needs to feel it. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, there, there's this feeling that's really frustrating when you're acting of you do a take, uh, or you do a performance if it's a live stage show and you're like, I fucking ate shit out there. I wasn't feeling, I was struggling yeah. for, everything was a reach, you know, or this felt awkward or uncomfortable or whatever it is. And and whoever the director, your co-stars, whoever went like, no, that was great. And you're like, it didn't feel good. It yeah, didn't well, feel good. And they're like, well, it looked great, so just do that again. And there's this frustration of like being told the thing that feels wrong in process is actually paying off on the outside so just keep doing that. And that's the part of her where it's like, right, they could sort of drag her on stage drunk and maybe frame everything around her and try to cover up for her and make it work. But Ben Gazar realizes in that moment, she's only ever going to get through this if whatever she accomplishes tonight is actually her doing it. And it'd be yeah. better for her to actually just fail on stage and embarrass herself than if to we let carry her, the rest of we're us just her as up. lost as we were before. Correct. If she can walk out, even if she's stumbling... Right. We have something. And whatever um, she's going to do yeah. out there tonight, stumbling on her own, is the thing she needs to do tonight. But I'll, yeah. And and so and so then we, we do see the performance and it builds through the whole thing. And it's a nice sort of positive thing, that version of what you talked about of like, we're building to this artistic thing and you're seeing the play mm -hmm. and not even like, you don't know whether it's supposed to be good or not, but it feels like it's good enough. And um we get to this final scene that we've never really seen the end of that's been like the kind of 
um, thing she's chasing of like finding something real with Cassavetes on stage with her and Maurice. Side note, there's a scene where they're in a restaurant and like the maitre d' is named Maurice. And it's like just the fucking stones to name two characters Maurice in this movie. We couldn't come up. I was like, what are you doing? Um, New Haven lousy <laughs> with Maurice's. Boy, they really are improvising. So, <laughs> so like they do it. And as you said, and, and I guess this will be my, we won't do wish I wrote it this week, right? We'll do wish I acted it. Oh, sure. And it does feel like they are, what they captured on film is something that was captured live on stage yes. of like them feeling in the moment and having some exchange and they're hamming it up and they're turning oh. to the audience and it's somehow this three quarters thing where it's in between breaking the fourth wall. It's almost and like just an odd vaudeville performance. Like it feels like they're doing like Abbott and Costello routines where yeah. it's like they're sort of, yeah, one foot in, one foot out. It's but it's just so engaging. Rhythm. <laughs> undeniably engaging and that's what i love as i was saying before of just this feeling of like i actually don't know if this is good theater no but if i saw this i would never forget it it would be unquestionably one of the most compelling things i had ever seen on stage and even watching it happen under the fake auspices of a movie if if we're doing the i wish i acted it the the answer is undeniably this section where you're just because like, it also God, feels it, fun. Like it, looks it feels like, like they're, they're having, having fun, fun, and it's like, and it's yeah. I don't know if it's there's good, no other but option. It's good. Yeah, it's good, yeah. but there's something there. They've they found something, if not honest, something that feels exciting. Which, by the way, is voiced by again Gus, the mustachioed man, earlier. Yeah, when they don't know if she's going to show up, and he goes. You know, even through all her nutty bullshit, even when she was going off script and like I was going up and we weren't doing the lines, like all that craziness, it felt more real, you know, yeah. than just yeah. doing the show. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, that's the whole idea. Like it gets put in that character's mouth of like, yeah, I don't know. I think what she's doing is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. And it gets put in the mouth of the guy who's not an actor. Yeah. You know? Who is just like, truly being in this? Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was. Yeah. Um, anyway, it was. It was an interesting uh, experience uh, for me. Like getting more into Cassavetes. I'll say also just as another side note, it looked better than other stuff that I've seen him do. I thought it like looked. Yes. Yeah. It's filmed well. Uh, people, you know, certain uh, uh, corners of, of cinephilia are kind of backhanded about him being just, uh, it's just about capturing the performance. He has no cinematic style outside of that. I think the way he constructs all of the scenes with the sort of specter of this dead girl yeah. is the most interesting stuff he's ever done cinematically. He ever did cinematically in his career where it's... Well, the way he films the stage where he puts you in totally. the audience looking up at the stage or he puts you like above it, like as yes. you're more from the perspective of like the people producing it who are worried about how it's going to go off versus the people yeah. watching it. It's cool. Yeah, Dominic Nero wrote a really great piece for Esquire a couple years back, basically arguing that like this movie is quietly the prototype for like so much quote unquote like elevated horror, you know? Yeah. Like our modern style of like A24, the horror is psychological. It's a manifestation of a of condition. your own personal trauma. Yeah. Right. And I think That's the right. way he depicts this other 
you know, this woman, the specter of this woman without using any special effects, but very simple technique of like keeping her out of focus, keeping her kind of obscured, using kind of confusing, crossing the line editing to make all those sequences feel very disorienting. It's like some of the most effective sort of camera work, actual like mean potatoes you use know, of cinematic language he ever a, did a, as we're about to lose the studio i'll say yeah. the one other and i think kevin has to leave too um the one other horror thing that is like kind of amazing this that i don't know could ever be replicated in anything else is because you have so little information about what the play is and you know how unhinged she is yes. there is so much tension yes every time she's on stage in like yes is she you don't know exactly when, when she she's has going gone off, off script. Yes. And yes. when she's doing what she's supposed to. Yes. And it's it, it's so thrilling and stomach churning and like effective um, yeah. in a way that I, I, you know, I don't know that I've seen that same style of tension created anywhere else. So it was it was a really cool movie. Thank you for coming in. My my love and solidarity to the SAG people. Of course, I'm a SAG member, too, but. I'm going back to WGA work mm -hmm. and uh, to the listeners of the show. Uh, the release may become more sporadic. I would like to find a way to keep this show alive. And I love you guys. And I thank you for listening and for enjoying. And I've enjoyed making it. And my experience during the strike was a very privileged one because I did have podcasts. I got to make something and put something creative out and um and have money coming in too from our you know our listeners that I uh not everyone had and I'm so grateful for it and so I want to say thank you and I want to keep this going and um and that I am appreciative uh and my schedule is going to be a little crazy in the short term because we've had this big break and everything and I hope that SAG gets resolved quickly and I need it to. Uh, um, but just, I wanted to say that piece that sincerely, like, this is the show where I drop the act a little bit. I was um, going to say, it's funny to hear you deliver the earnest version of I love you and I'm in love with you. Yeah, <laughs> but, but I but I am. I do. I know that the strike was easier for me because uh, because of the people that... Um, listen to and support us. And so well, I, I've say, made this I joke. It. I've made this joke to you, Sean. I mean, we've had this conversation a number of times about how, how fortunate and privileged we feel about this, that like, you know, we got into podcasting at the right time with the right people yeah. and our shows have taken off and stayed maintained and all of that. But, but my joke, I make a lot. That's a little glib is like, I'm so grateful. I have the, the stable and consistent career of podcaster to support my hobby of working in film and television. <laughs> but the underlying sentiment of that, and it's without getting into it, because I, you know, I've loved listening to the show. I think it's been great. And I love hearing this other side of you that's more representative of the version of you I text with about movies and stuff. And I think all the guests you've had on have had such great perspective about the, the actual kind of practicality of what it feels like doing this thing that's often kind of mystified and turned into this very elite high level thing. But there's, there's a real, you know, that's the public perception represents a very small percentage of people working in any side of this industry. Right. And all the stuff we're fighting for in these strikes was is is just about really uh, the, the ability to build any basic life out of doing this work, especially as yeah. the work is 
valued and and sort of uh, digested more than ever. But the value yes. of the people who make it has gone down and down and down, has been so thoroughly squeezed, uh, causing both of us to become <laughs> more podcasters who yeah. then moonlight with this other stuff on the side uh, when it when it's uh, convenient. And um, yeah, I, I, I just... You know, I, I hope there's a more uh, sustainable uh, uh, future uh, going forward. The WGA deal is incredibly encouraging, is a lot better than, than you know, I think in my nihilistic viewpoint, I thought we were going to land at. And the resolution yeah. came sooner than I was worried it would. And yep. uh, yeah, we're recording this basically in the week after the WGA uh, has fully uh, accepted the agreement and the SAG negotiations are about to start. And hopefully by the time this comes out, things will already be close to tied up. Uh, Mm -hmm. But, but yeah, it's been, it's been an incredibly uh, weird time and a weird time to then get on microphone and talk about movies a bunch. Of course. Yeah. It's all been um, sort of strange and surreal, but this is where we're at. And podcasters are on the front lines. You know, we're first responders. Yeah. Yeah. No. We we took the words out of my mouth. Yeah. Because of the nature, the immediacy of the art form. Yeah. No, you're right. In the truest sense of the world, we are first responders. No. (laughs) If you if you silo our existence only into podcaster, even that in and of itself is a multi-hyphenate because we are truth tellers, we're philosophers, we're journalists, we're and EMTs. We're entertainers. We're entertainers. We're and EMTs, we're though, basically, as you said. Right. And we're preachers. And we're preachers. I mean, we're going, we're going to the old revival tent. Street preachers. We're snake yeah. handling. We're snake handling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, and, no, we're no, friend- no, we're, and we're friends. Yeah. And we're friends. Mm-hmm. We're your friends who live in your head. Yeah. And yes, yes, we are your and, friends, and, and we and love you, and we're in love with you. Sometimes you're therapists, and sometimes sometimes you are our therapist, and sometimes we're mom and dad. Sometimes, and sometimes we're baby. Oh, more often than not, we're baby, and that's a great way to end. Um, Perfect ending. So, uh, from the two uh, little babies, we hashtag the love two ya. little babies. This is this has been subtitles odd. Thank you, Griffin. Appreciate it so much. Uh, My pleasure. Listen to blank check. The best. Yeah. Listen to blank check. <laughs>